Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll begin with a look at the final numbers for fiscal year 2023, which ended on September 30th. Oh, what a year it was. Um, <laughs> they're, they're not really encouraging numbers. Uh, and then we'll move on to a discussion of President Biden's roughly $106 billion supplemental spending request for Ukraine, Israel, and other international priorities. And we'll consider the impact of rising interest rates on the budget. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join me for that conversation. And then finally, uh, we'll hear from two of our favorite budget experts on this show, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute and Mark Goldwine of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Brian and Mark recently spoke to a class uh, on U.S. fiscal policy that I co-teach with Chase Hageman at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. And for those of you that are wondering, yes, that is the same Chase Hageman, who was the original host of Facing the Future. And for those of you keeping track, Chase is now New Hampshire's state economic development director. But getting back to the class, uh, during the class, uh, Riedel and Goldwine discussed the current budget outlook and the prospects of a new fiscal commission. And we'll play a few excerpts from their remarks. But let's get started with the final numbers for fiscal year 2023. Tori and Steve, last year, or uh, last week, the Treasury Department reported that the annual budget deficit was uh, $1.7 trillion, approximately $300 billion more than the prior year. That alone would be bad enough, but a look behind the numbers shows a more troubling picture. In fact, when you look past some of the scoring issues related to the president's student loan forgiveness plan, uh, which was struck down by the Supreme Court, the 2023 deficit is closer to $2 trillion or double the deficit from the prior year. So that can get a little bit confusing. Steve, I look to you to sort this out and clear the confusion. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, so as, as folks may recall, last year, President Biden proposed to write off uh, student loan debt, up, depending on the student, either $10,000 or $20,000 in student loan. Uh, he proposed to basically to write off, eliminate that amount of debt. And that was estimated to cost roughly $400 billion. Now, the way the federal budget works, these are student loans. So the government loans money so that students can go to college, and then they pay those loans back after they graduate. Some years ago, 
we changed the scoring, the way the budget records student loans. I mean, normally you would make a loan, that's a cost to the government, and then the student repays the loan and that's income to the government. And that would occur over, you know, the 10 or 20 or 30 years that it takes to, to repay the loan, depending on what kind of loan it is. But some years ago, under what was called the Credit uh, Reform Act, we changed the scoring. So instead of calculating how much we loan each year and how much we'll get repaid each year going into the future, they do what's known as a present value calculation. And essentially, they take this flow of loans and repayments and they turn it into a lump sum equivalent. So they estimate how much we're going to lend to the students and then how much the students will repay. And those are based on, on a present value calculation. And so when they scored this, when the president made the proposal last year, they scored it at roughly 400 billion. That was a present value number and it was put into the budget on a one-time basis. So last year, the total federal spending was $400 billion higher based on the present value estimate from last year. Now, when the Supreme Court struck down the student loan proposal, they took the $400 billion that was in the budget last year and they took it out this year because that proposal is, is no longer there. Now, to make it a little more complicated, the president had also proposed what was called a income-related or income-contingent repayment plan. And that also has a cost that's scored on a present value basis. He did that um, at the beginning of the year. And so, therefore, that got netted against, or, or that was an additional cost that was netted against the savings. So, the original $400 billion that got taken out was a little bit offset by this new proposal. So the numbers don't exactly match from last year, from, from 2022 to 2023. But essentially, the net effect is the deficit in 22 was overstated by almost 400 billion. And then this year's deficit is understated by almost the same amount because of the, the way the present value scoring of, of student loans is, is put into the budget. I guess whether it's 1.7 trillion or 2 trillion, the uh, fiscal year 2023 deficit is uh, an enormously large uh, shortfall, particularly when you consider that the economy is doing fairly well. I mean, unemployment is very low. Uh, certainly the inflation picture is still high, but it's uh, improved considerably over the year. Uh, incomes are growing. You usually don't see massive budget deficits in that scenario. I mean, it's we've got military issues, but there's not a major war. There's you know not a depression. So um, this suggests that there might be something else going on, you know, with the budget, and that some of these pre-COVID uh, patterns are reasserting themselves. So, Charlie, you've been looking at the uh, the monthly Treasury report that had the numbers. Uh, what was driving the increase in the deficit? Mm -hmm. It's 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 kind of a surprise uh, for a, a, a budget wonk like myself. Um, when you subtract out net interest that we pay on the debt, um, spending was not a problem, was not a contributor uh, to to this deficit. This was largely a problem of revenues that tanked, frankly. Uh, relative to the year prior and the impact of rising interest rates on the, the amount of money we spend to service our debt. Um, you know, 2022, a year ago, was a huge year for revenue. That was a big 21% increase in revenue in 2020, 2022. 
So it's reasonable to expect that revenues in 23 <laughs> would not be as strong, but they fell, you know, more than 9%. Um, and there we can talk about lots of reasons why that happened. But then on the, the net interest side, you know, net interest actually rose uh, 39% over the year prior. The impact of we've just amassed so much debt. And then, of course, the interest, interest rates have risen because of the Federal Reserve's uh, efforts to reduce inflation. They've been raising interest rates like crazy. Um, you know, interest net interest costs actually rose $184 billion uh, this year. So, yeah, between falling revenues and soaring net interest costs, you know, we wound up with a much bigger deficit. What about the uh, programmatic uh, on on the spending side? Uh, the the non interest spending. What were the major? You know, what was growing the fastest? Well, I mean, as, as always, it's it's you know, it's your your entitlement programs, right? It's it's Social Security and Medicare. Um, just because so many uh, you know baby boomers have now retired and are collecting Social Security and are collecting Medicare. So that those were your 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 big drivers. What's your best guess on the uh, <laughs> on the drop in uh, revenues? What what caused that? So uh, yeah, the the revenue picture is really interesting, and you know it's 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 hard to know what the true baseline is, so that you can because there are a number of factors that are contributing. There are sort of permanent structural issues like the 2017 tax cuts. Okay, so you know individual income taxes fell 17 percent. Um, corporate income taxes fell 1.2%. Um, so that that's a, you know, there, there's an impact on, on just because of the change in the tax law in 2017. But there were a number of one-off factors that sort of contributed to that as well. Um, we had a surge in, a late surge, in, in my opinion, in employee retention tax credits, if you, claims. If you're watching television these days or listening to the radio, I keep hearing these advertisements everywhere for these companies that are saying, hey, you know, the, you can still qualify, you can still apply for the 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 TARP uh, employee retention tax credit. So there's that. Um, there was delayed tax filing for states that were affected by natural disasters, including California, which obviously has a large number of, of taxpayers. Um, Americans bought fewer imported goods, uh, so our customs duties fell 20%. Um, capital gains taxes were down huge because uh, the stock market just didn't perform as well as it did in, in 2022. And then Federal Reserve remittances, the amount of money that the Federal Reserve gives back to the Treasury every year. And, you know, the Federal Reserve isn't allowed to earn profits. Those profits are returned to the, to the Treasury. Those fell by $100 billion. So you, you tie that all up in a bow and you end up with, you know, a big, you know, 9% drop in revenues. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the final numbers for fiscal year 2023. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the current state of the federal budget. And in this segment, I want to focus on two factors that will affect this year's budget and the trajectory of the, of the debt. And those factors are rising interest rates and rising costs of supplemental military and humanitarian aid. Uh, so first, let's talk about interest. Steve, is, as we discussed in the last segment, 
rising debt service costs played a big role in the fiscal year 2023 deficit increase. And it doesn't look like that dynamic is going to recede uh, anytime soon. So could you talk to us a little bit about why interest rates pose such a, a threat to the budget outlook? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, when the, the federal debt is as big as it is, uh, every time interest rates go up, you have to pay more interest to service the debt. Um, you know, the gro- gross federal debt is is over over $30 trillion. So 1% interest on $30 trillion is $300 billion. So that's it's a big number. But I mean, what we've seen during the pandemic, uh, the Fed lowered interest rates, and the government was able to basically take advantage of that. If you go back to 2021, 2022, um, you know, there, there's what's called, you know, there's different different ways of financing the debt. You have what are called uh, bills, which are government securities that, that have a maturity of less than a year. They're one month, three months, six months, less than a year. Then you have what are called notes, which have a, a maturity of a year to, to 10 years. And then you have bonds, which are 10 years and more. So if you think about financing the debt, you have the government has this menu of options. They can choose short-term bills or medium-term notes or long-term bonds. And back in, you know, during the pandemic, those rates, the bills, the notes, and the bonds, those rates were, you know, less than a percent, um, actually le- less than a half a percent on, on the bills and less than a percent on, on the notes and, and barely 2% on the bonds. So essentially the government, you know, if you look at the, the mix of short versus long, the government was financing its debt uh, at about 1%. And there's new, new, new bonds that were being issued at that point. So 1% of 30 trillion, that's $300 billion. Now, since the end of the pandemic and the, the rise in inflation, the Fed has been trying to fight inflation by raising interest rates. And what we've seen happen is that across the range of all those maturities, the bills, the notes, and the bonds, short to long, all of those rates have risen. And if you look at, you know, within the last week or so, those rates are all at or over 5%. Interestingly, the short-term rates are actually above 5%. The 10-year is just below 5%, and then the 20 and 30 are just above. So that average is about 5%. Well, $30 trillion at 5%, that's one and a half trillion dollars. So, you know, the now obviously we're not paying 5% on all the debt that's outstanding. We're only paying 5% on the new debt that's issued. But what that means is if interest rates were to stay at the range they are now at 5%, that over time our interest costs would increase dramatically. Now, it's anybody's guess how long interest rates are going to remain, you know, at this current rate, at the current level. You know, so whether this is a temporary expense that we have to deal with for the next year or two, or whether we continue to see higher rates out into the future, you know, higher, longer, uh, as the Fed has been talking about keeping the Fed funds rate at a higher level for longer. Now, what longer means is that a year or two or three? Uh, I mean, their projections, of course, is that rates will come back down within the next year or two. If they're wrong, the budget is going to be in much worse shape than than what what's currently projected. But at any rate, if, even if they come back down a bit, it's we're we're past the days of financing the debt at one percent. I mean, yes, certainly. If this debt rolls over, it's going to be higher. I forget what is the CBO thinking that the uh, in the projections that the ten year comes back down under four. Yeah, they they've got long rates and short rates. You know, basically under five. 
it's it's not surprising that uh, people are uh, worried about these <laughs> rising bond yields as uh, having an effect on the uh, on the deficit. And I, I guess the question is: Are the rising bond yields because of the rising <laughs> deficit? We don't. We really don't know that. But uh, what do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's the dilemma: is that you know how much of the higher rates are you know related to higher inflation. I mean, normally you you assume that the interest rate is going to be at least equal to the inflation rate because if it's not, that means you're borrowing it at negative rates of return. In other words, if if you're borrowing at three percent and inflation is at four, the money that you pay back is is actually depreciating in value. So you know normally interest rates and inflation rates are at least equal. And historically, interest rates have been above the inflation rate. And so normally when inflation is high, interest rates over time will go up. Um, you know, how much of the, the long-term rates that we're seeing now at, at, at 4%, 5%, how much of that is due to inflation expectations that inflation will remain at 3 or 4%, and how much of that is a risk premium, meaning that market participants are worried about the ability of the government to repay the debt, and they're charging higher interest rates to reflect the risk, the higher risk associated with the potential lack of repayment. Um, you know, both of those factors play a role, and it, it's hard to it's hard to separate the two. How much of is in, how much inflation expectations and how much risk premium? Uh, those typically move in the same direction, uh, but but to, to separate the two is, is often very difficult. Well, Tori, uh, you've been looking at the president's supplemental spending request uh, mm -hmm. for international security. Can you break down where the money would go? Sure. Uh, so the president has issued so far one supplemental request, though we have been informed that a second one would be coming. The first uh, supplemental is largely a security supplemental. Uh, there are four buckets. Um, the the broad total, uh, close to roughly $106 billion. The, the, the four buckets are money for Ukraine. That's about $61 billion. Uh, money for Israel, uh, about $14 billion. Um, and then between the two of them, there's additional $9 billion for humanitarian assistance that would be shared between Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, et cetera. Uh, third bucket is border security money, about $13 billion there. Um, most of it is for securing the border, hiring more um, uh, uh, border patrol agents. Um, uh, but then there's a the small bucket, which is basically countering China's influence, about $4 billion there, whether it's direct uh, financial support for our Indo-Pacific allies in the area versus just countering China's influence in the developing world. Um, so that's about $4 billion there. So that's sort of largely how the, the, the bucket breaks down. Majority of it is for Ukraine, absolutely. And it's it would be designated an emergency and and thus uh, over and above the current spending cap for fiscal year twenty four. Exactly, exactly. Is it? Um, I mean, this seems like a high amount for emergency <laughs> <laughs> spending. Uh, I, I mean, is it, it part of this? I mean, I, part of it certainly seems to be emergency. Part of it seems to be just sort of stuff that's bled into the baseline that we're going to spend more for. Right. I, I mean, first of all, let me start off by saying, you know, I've been either on the Hill or watching the Hill since uh, 
late 90s, early 2000s. I've never, I cannot remember a supplemental this large. Um, now, part of it obviously is inflation, but yowza, this is a whopper of, of a supplemental. And, you know, some of it, you're right, was unforeseeable. I mean, who could have foreseen Hamas attacking Israel? All right. So, yeah, I, I get the whole Israel was totally unplanned, unanticipated, totally earns the emergency designation. Um, but we've been funding efforts in Ukraine now, you know, since they invaded, uh, since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, which has been, you know, how many? Year and a half. Yeah, a year and a half now. Um, and I'm very much worried that we're getting into funding another war, if you will, uh, off the books. Um, we're continuing to fund aid for Ukraine uh, on an emergency basis rather than putting it into our baseline and planning for it accordingly. Um and and well, that concerns me. We don't know how long this, you know, this is. Yeah, I mean, war- sixty billion is supposed to be for the year, and that's that's mm-hmm. more than a lot of federal agencies. Um, so it's right, and we've already given forty four billion already. So you have. It's not. It's not to say and- we shouldn't. It's not to say we shouldn't be doing it. It's just like you know, if it's going to be a regular recurring expense of that size, we should Let's plan plan for it. Exactly, plan for it, budget for it, pay for it. Um. Well, uh, we don't know what the prospects are of any of this supplemental because there's such division in Congress. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, and until the House elects a speaker, we won't be able to move any legislation anyway. It's, it's, I was going to say it's it's a really weird dynamic right now, and that you know a- aid to Israel, uh, you know, divides the Democratic caucus, and aid to Ukraine divides the Republican caucus. It's 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 very interesting. Yeah, I mean, on this is like uh, the the paralysis is not necessarily along party lines. Right. But uh, anyway, that's all uh, the time we have for this segment. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And when we come back after the break, we'll hear remarks from two budget experts who recently spoke to my class at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, we'll hear from Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a former chief economist to former Senator Rob Portman uh, of Ohio. And we'll also hear from Mark Goldwine, senior vice president and senior policy director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, Mark previously served as associate director of the Simpson-Bowles Fiscal Commission. Riedel and Goldwine recently spoke to a class on U.S. fiscal policy that I co-teach with the show's former host, Chase Hageman, at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. I asked uh, Goldwine to give us his perspective on how the budget challenge has changed in recent years. If you look at our fiscal situation now, it's it's pretty clearly unsustainable. We have the highest deficits as a share of the economy we've ever had in peacetime. Debt is going to be record levels in a few years. Interest costs, if current interest rates continue, will be the second largest government program um, in a few years. I could give you any of these stats. Compare that to back in 2000, where Brian had an awesome graph. Things were looking pretty good. We were running surpluses headed towards um, paying off the debt, which we were all worried was going to, um, you know, kill the financial markets. Um, Luckily, politicians saved us from, from, the terror of paying off the debt. There are sort of two different ways you could look at essentially what's happened between 2001-ish and now. The one way you can look at it is what legislative changes have been made 
between then and now, because under the law from that was in place in 2000, revenue was pretty high and was going to keep growing, as was Social Security Medicare. Relative to that, the big legislative changes we made were tax cuts. Um, we cut taxes in 2001, in 2003, in 2009, in 2010, in, I guess, technically 2013, because it was done at like 11.55 p.m. and then we didn't sign into law until January 2nd or something in 2015, in 2017, in 2018. Notice I'm not just naming like the Bush and the Trump tax cuts. These were actually a lot of tax cuts, um, many partisan, but many bipartisan. That pretty much drove it. Um, if you take the tax cuts plus the money that we spent, plus the interest we accumulated from spending basically on the wars and on one-time emergencies, that pretty much explains the entire difference in our in, in our deficits from where we were. The other way to look at it is is over time, right? And over time, what has changed is um, mainly that spending has gone up and it has actually gone up in discretionary, but it's mainly gone up, uh, as Brian pointed out, in the Social Security and the Medicare space. So then if the question is, where do we go from here? I think both of those are informative because Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid costs grew in some ways because those programs have become more generous, but in some ways because the same generosity offered to more people um, or the same generosity in light of higher healthcare prices means more costs. And so there's no realistic path to going back to 2000 on Social Security and Medicare. If we had the same level of generosity in 2000, we'd still have more costs. And there's frankly no pa plausible path to going back to the 2000 law um, on taxes. Most of these tax cuts were not tax cuts for the rich. There were plenty of tax cuts for the rich, don't get me wrong, but most of the cost was tax cuts across the income spectrum. And since we now define middle class as anyone making less than $400,000, uh, which is actually 98% of Americans, that means the significant lion's share of those taxes uh, were on that group. Now as for discretionary, when we have big budget deals, we tend to cut it. But when we are outside of those big budget deals, we're kind of ramping back it up, back up. So discretionary is kind of often on this on this seesaw situation that I think makes it overstate some of the savings we've had. What do we need to do now? The the answer is really everything. There's not a plausible path, as I said, to get here just from changes to Social Security and Medicare. There's not a plausible path to get here from revenue. There's not a plausible path to get here in my opinion, where we leave discretionary un uncapped. Um, we are going to have to look at all parts of the budget. And past attempts to look at this seriously have done just that. Um, Brian and I have kind of worked together on some of these attempts over the years, but um, I was lucky enough to be the associate director on the Simpson Bowles Fiscal Commission in 2010. When we were put into a place, we were a laughingstock. Uh, Obama administration's biggest supporter of ours, Peter Orzag, who's his own direct budget director, He's our biggest supporter. I remember a cocktail party. He said, don't dismiss Simpson Bowles Commission. They can probably get a co-chairs report, which meant that our biggest fan thought we could get votes from two out of 18 of our members. We blew past expectations. Uh, the Simpson Bowles Commission was able to get a bunch of Republicans that had taken a pledge for no new taxes, agree to a plan that raised taxes, raised tax attraction reform. It was able to get a bunch of Democrats that at the time prior to it basically had not even admitted debt was a problem to not only admit it was a problem, but support changes to raise the retirement age, to reduce healthcare costs. It was able to get both sides to agree to caps on defense and non-defense uh, spending. It put forward what was at the time $4 trillion of savings, which was a lot of money back then. Now we would need basically $8 trillion, but it, it was it was over a decade ago. And it, in many ways, 
It got 11, 11 of 18 members in support of its recommendations, which was a super majority, but it needed a super duper majority of 14 out of 18 in order to get consideration in Congress. So it didn't, but it ultimately did set the tone for the fiscal conversation over the next few years. It led to high level negotiations between President Obama and Speaker Boehner. They weren't going to adopt some symbols as written, but they were essentially looking at the same framework, healthcare savings, social security reform, caps on discretionary spending, new revenue. It led to the creation of the super committee, which I also was lucky enough to work on. Uh, we sadly did not reach agreement, but we did a lot of good work to develop a lot of policy. Brian wrote most of it. If Brian's boss was the co-chair of the commission, I think we probably would have gotten uh, recommendations. I'll say that. It led to further high-level fiscal cliff negotiations. It uh, resulted in several pieces of legislation that pulled pieces off of it. But unfortunately, we lost momentum. Part of that was people got tired of the same fights over and over again. Part of it was the economics changed. Interest rates got really low and people thought, well, that's not a problem anymore. Part of it was that Washington got more partisan. The sides got further apart. But if we're going to have a deal, it's going to look like what we talked about in some symbols. It's going to look about what we talked about in the super committee. It really is the only path forward. It doesn't have to be a grand bargain, but what we found with Simpson Bowles was people were allowed to were willing to give a lot more when they got a lot more. Um, we got uh, hate mail every single day before we put out our commission recommendations. And after we put out our initial recommendations, all of a sudden we started getting fan mail. Um, this is not going to be fun. People are going to pay more in taxes. People are going to get less in government services. Um, interest groups are going to lose their subsidies. Um, but in the process, we get something out of it. We get a sustainable fiscal situation. We get lower interest rates, inflation under control, faster economic growth, lower health care costs, a solvent social security system. So um, my kind of long and short of this is this is doable. Uh, we've done it before. And at this juncture, a commission is probably our best way, um, our best way forward. That was Mark Goldwine on the current budget challenges. Next, I asked Brian Riedel about the work he's done defining the elements of a successful deficit reduction plan. I wrote this report in 2019. I looked at 40 years of deficit negotiations in Congress. Some of the deals in which I'd participated in, some of which happened while I was in second grade uh, and had to do a lot of interviews of a lot of people who were involved. And what I noted is there were 14, I did a, it was a case study in 14 separate times, Congress really made a push or a commission or had major deficit reduction conversations, 14 times. Of those 14, six times, they actually got a deal enacted and eight times they failed. And so I tried to figure out what determined success and failure? And I found three criteria. Criteria one was you wanted to have a penalty default, something that will happen if you don't come to a deal. In 83, there was social security benefits are gonna be cut because the trust funds are gonna be exempt. Or there's gonna be a major sequestration automatic cuts, or there's, there's a concern that we're about to go into a recession and interest rates are too high, some sort of penalty that will kick in if we don't succeed. Number two was simple public support. And by public support, I don't mean the public was saying, yay, raise my taxes or yay, cut my spending, but at least a public acceptance that deficits are a top issue and they won't storm the Capitol if you do this. And third was healthy negotiations. 
which is basically a healthy culture in Congress where the two parties can actually talk to each other, negotiate in a healthy manner and work out a deal. What I learned, if you can get two out of those three, penalty default, public support or healthy negotiations, they got a deal every time. If you had less than two out of three, you basically failed. A big takeaway is that five of the six deals happened that were successful happened between 83 and 97. That was the era where we went from a deficit of 6% of GDP to a balanced budget. There's only been one successful deal since the end of 97. And the main criteria that's been missing for the last 25 years is the final criteria, healthy negotiations. Congress is so toxic right now. It's so partisan. They don't know how to work together. They don't know how to cut deals that even if there was a penalty default and even if the public did care about deficits, that might be the biggest barrier right now. I work with Congress every day. I used to work in Congress. And to be blunt, these jokers don't know how to make a deal across par uh, party lines, even if they tried. I'm worried. I think a commission might be one of the things that can solve the healthy negotiations problem. But boy, that it, we got a lot of work to do. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And we're listening to remarks from two budget experts who recently spoke to my class at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're listening to remarks from Brian Riedel, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. They recently spoke to a class on U.S. fiscal policy that I uh, co-teach with this show's former host, Chase Hageman, at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Well, Mark Goldwine is a strong proponent of creating a new fiscal commission uh, to make re recommendations for putting the budget on a sustainable path. So I asked him why he thinks a commission is needed at this time. So let me stage set a little more. The interest rate on the 10-year bond today closed just below 5%, the highest it's been since 2007, pretty close to the highest it's been this millennium. If that persists, interest costs will be literally the second largest line item in the budget by 2026 in two years, because we're in 2024, because we do fiscal years. Social security is 10 years from insolvency, meaning if we do nothing for 10 years, the trust fund runs out. A typical couple retiring this year gets a $17,000 cut. Uh, our debt is headed towards record levels as a share of the economy. Our inflation is still not under control. We borrowed $2 trillion next year. We have a major, major problem. We have an even bigger problem, which is our political system at this point is completely intractable. The president of the United States has said Social Security and Medicare are off the books. Those are the two biggest government programs. He's also said no new taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year, not even tax compliance. So if you're going to cheat on your taxes, just make sure you're only making $399,000 a year and you are set, right? So he's exempted the two largest programs and 98% of Americans from taxes. Now, I don't want to pick on him because 
The prior guy also said, don't touch Social Security and Medicare. And he said, don't cut, don't touch any taxes and in fact, cut them, right? So this is incredibly intractable. And so Congress isn't gonna be able to do this. The president isn't gonna be able to do this. And a commission isn't gonna be able to do this, but something has to, right? And so I'm not playing for what's our 90% chance of victory. I'm playing for what's our 10% chance. Um, a commission has a small chance of having a major impact. When we started Simpson Bowls, nobody thought we would get anywhere. The first meeting that I went to, the first major meeting I went to of tax staff, we spent an hour and a half fighting over how many speakers there would be at the first member meeting, right? It started bad, but we built trust and we built interest and we built knowledge. And by the end of it, we had Dick Durbin in Democratic leadership, Tom Coburn, the late Tom Coburn, ranked at that time the most conservative member of the Senate, agreeing on a plan to fix the debt. So this can happen when you kind of build the right kind of trust. A commission is not guaranteed success. A commission gives you a small chance at a major impact. But here's the other thing. A commission also gives you a much bigger chance at, at a, a smaller impact because commissions can change the conversation, right? Commissions can change the conversation in Washington. Commissions can develop new ideas that weren't there before. Um, commissions can facilitate high level leadership negotiations. This was happened in 1983. You know, we talk about the Greenspan Commission as if it saved Social Security. And, you know, I think we all share that myth sometimes, but the truth is the Greenspan Commission couldn't do it. Um, and so what happened was the, the Reagan White House and um, uh, surrogates for Tip O'Neill negotiated using the commission as their vehicle, right? So there are lots of ways commissions can succeed beyond that pure success model. Um, and the alternative to the commission is the current process where we can't even, where we can barely raise the debt limit or fund the government and we don't even have a speaker. That was Mark Goldwine speaking to my class at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Uh, the next question was asked by one of the students about uh, rising interest rates. Here's what Brian Riedel had to say about it. CBO says that the interest rate, the average interest rate paid on the debt. Now, the debt, I mean, there's three month bills, there's 30 year bills, but the average interest rate that they pay, CBO says will gradually grow to 3% over 30 years. If you look at historically, interest rates have been higher. In fact, I think late as 2008, the government was paying close to 5% interest on its debt. So, really, the first thing to notice is that the low interest rates since 2008 have been an anomaly. And it's been an anomaly because the Federal Reserve kept interest rates, the Fed funds rate near zero for about 12 years. You also had baby boomers saving money. You had a global savings glut and you had low productivity. All of that led to interest rates really falling for 30 years from 1990 until now. The danger moving forward is we've already, right, I mean, as Mark said, the 10-year bond right now is at 4.9%. And here we're talking about whether it can hit 4% in 30 years. The factors that can, that can push it up are, there's multiple. First, the Fed is likely to not go back to those earlier interest rates, even when we beat inflation. It's hard to imagine the Federal Reserve pushing the Fed funds rate down to 1% to, to again, not after getting burned like they were last time. So the baseline uh, interest rate by the Federal Reserve is probably going to be maybe one to two points higher than it was before. Additionally, 
the global savings glut has receded. There's just, just less savings that's flooding the market. The baby boomers who used to be saving all this money and flooding all the savings markets are going to be retiring and drawing down those savings. And then debt itself raises interest rates because the more money government borrows, the less savings are available for anybody else. And that pushes up the price of savings or the interest rate. We're scheduled to borrow $120 trillion over the next 30 years. And really, it's probably going to be closer to $150 trillion if we extend the tax cuts. It's going to be really hard to borrow $120 or $150 trillion without interest rates rising. And so you put all those factors together, and it looks like the trend is upward. Uh, it looks like you get, you're going to get closer to 4%, if not settling even higher. And the danger is every point interest rates rise above projections, if they're sustained, adds $30 trillion to the 30-year debt. That's per point. $3 trillion over the decade, $30 trillion over 30 years. That's almost as much as adding a new defense department every time interest rates rise. So really, Washington has gambled on the hope that interest rates are going to stay low forever. It's the only way the borrowing model works. That's a very dangerous assumption uh, to assume that all of these factors are going to keep low interest rates forever. And there's no backup plan if they're wrong. Mark, do you have anything to add on interest rates? Yeah, yeah I'll jump. I mean, so the first thing is, I, I just want to reiterate what Brian said. Um, the reason to think interest rates will be above 4% is because they already are, right? The average interest rate we're paying right now on new debt is about 5.2. The average interest rate total is much lower because we have a bunch of old debt. Um, in fact, about 80% of the debt that we currently hold um, was borrowed when three-month bond was below 4% and 70% when the 10-year was below 4%. So we did a lot of borrowing when interest rates were low, um, in part because some people, I think, um, some earnestly, some less so, told us it was essentially free money when interest rates were so close to the inflation rate or or, or so low. There's a like a tinge to the truth to that, which is that if you borrow when interest rates are low, invest it and pay that back before it rolls over, that can be kind of smart financial choice. The problem was, most first of all, mostly we didn't borrow for investment, but more importantly, we had no plan to pay it back. And so now, all that low interest rate debt we borrowed is slowly rolling over into interest rates that are 5% to 5.5%, which is the range of most of our bonds now. Uh, going forward, I do think interest rates are going to come down some on the, certainly on the short end, because the Federal Reserve isn't going to keep its rates so high. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons to think that on the longer term, there's actually more upward pressure, as Brian as Brian mentioned. And so this is a big risk. Um, let me, let me say one more thing that I'm going to try to say in a minute, but could be an entire lecture. And in fact, I am doing an entire lecture on this on Halloween, if you want to tune in, which is there's this concept of debt sustainability as it relates to, we people call it R versus G, the interest rate on government debt versus the growth rate of GDP. And this the, the short story here is if your growth rate is above your interest rate, you're always eroding away your existing debt because you're growing out of your debt with your debt to GDP faster than you're adding to it with your interest costs. Um, and that has a lot of sort of special mathematical properties, including that if your deficits are stable, your, your non-interest deficits are stable, your debt is going to max out somewhere. 
when G when R is above G, when it should above G, things start to get bad really fast. And when the interest rate is above your growth rate and adding to the debt, you can you can get the risk of what's called dynamic debt spiral. And the basic problem is this. Um, so right now, interest rates are 5%, growth rate we think is going to be 4%. So interest rates are above the growth rate. That means that every year we're adding more to the debt. The more we add to the debt, the more we pay in interest. The more we pay in interest, the more we add to the debt. And then that starts to flow through to higher debt boosting interest rates. And so now maybe interest rates will be 1.5% above growth rate um, and shrinking economic growth. And so you could get this. I'm not saying this will happen, but um, you can very quickly get this hockey stick situation where you're pushing up your interest rates and your interest payments at the same time. Uh, and there's no going back. That's all the time we have for this week. You've been listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in again next week. 